knowledge and everything that can keep people interested. But the gospel is just so simple that the children can act it out. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful thing to remember. What a beautiful truth. I don't know about you, but I, I've been noticing more and more, and we talk, it seems like we talk about this every year, but uh, as I was driving through uh, just up 29 the other day, uh, it just seems like Jesus is less and less and less of Christmas. And uh, it was just so sad to me as I was looking around and just looking for evidences of the Lord uh, at this time of year and wondering what people do who are celebrating the season, the holidays, uh, when Jesus is really the focus of it all. And so uh, as we just pause this morning and reflect on what this time of year is about, uh, for you who are here normally, you know that every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection. That's why we gather. Uh, this morning, uh, as we've been building up to it, we celebrate the birth of Christ. And we've been looking at that in Matthew's Gospel. We'll get to that in just a minute. But I thought, I'm not going to have you stand for this, but I want to pray, and then I want to read through Luke's gospel of the, the birth of Christ. It's such a familiar passage. We're not going to put the things, the scripture up on the, on the screen, so we're going to go back to the old school method of taking that Bible that you have in the pew rack, or you can look it up on your phone if that's quicker for you, and find Luke chapter 2. Okay, Luke chapter 2. Now, you cheaters on your phone are going to be able to find that real quickly, so be patient for those who are still thumbing through the pages, okay? Luke chapter 2, that's New Testament, and I'm not being funny. Um, for those of you that may not know, Matthew begins the New Testament, Mark and Luke, okay? Luke chapter 2. We have the account of Jesus' birth in Matthew's gospel. We've studied that over these last several weeks ago uh, when we looked at the beauty of Christ's coming. Matthew was much more brief. If you remember, he dealt with the genealogy. Um, from both Matthew, uh, excuse me, Joseph and Mary's life, lives, uh, but didn't cover it, the details of the birth of Christ as much as Luke does. And so, uh, let's as you're finding your place there, let's go to him in prayer and just. I hope this morning we'll just push away the things of life, and and you know that word carries with it a lot of other stuff, right? Each of you this morning are dealing with various scenarios in your life, and I'm always sensitive to that as I feel the things in my life and go through the experiences I go through on a regular basis. I often think of you and what you're experiencing. Uh, some of you, uh, the holidays are not a good time. Uh, it's not fond memories. It's not a time of fond memories for you. For others of you, you're remembering what once was so joyful, and you're wondering what happened and why it's not that way. And so I'm aware that even as we're gathered together this morning that each of you are bringing your own set of circumstances. And I just want to encourage each of us to remember that Christ came knowing our lives. And I mean that in the way that not only did he know us then, but he, know, he knew us then as he will know us now because he knows all things. And we'll see that again in just a little bit as we reference a couple things from Matthew's Gospel. So let's pray and uh, just really focus our hearts on the Lord this morning. Lord, we thank you. And that's always our opening line, really. Uh, not only have you commanded us to, but just when we step back and, and just realize that all things come from you. Uh, this season is about you. Life is about you. Uh, 
We're told in your word that you are the creator of all things. It is you who gives us the breath to breathe. It's you who sustains us. It's you who holds even the molecular structure together, the universe together. Lord, we so often, and you know this, but we find ourselves so distracted, so caught off by our flesh, and not intentionally, it just happens, sometimes intentionally, as we seek to fulfill our own lustly passions. But Lord, so easily we're caught off by the enemy's attempts to distract us, and we forget, we miss you in the scenarios of life, and we get worried, we get frustrated, we're fearful, and we're just a mess at times. Lord, we come together at times like this, and we're just so warmly reminded of your love, your compassion, your tenderness, how you thought so much of us in the midst of our sin that you would come and provide a way of us to be rescued, that our debt would be paid for. And so, as always, every Sunday, Lord, we worship you and we honor you and just so look forward to this time. It's just so exciting to be together as your people on a Sunday morning and to just long to see your face and to hear your word spoken into our hearts. So, Lord, do with us in our respective places in life, as you know them full well, those unseen places that the world knows not about and even our friends may not know anything about, the worries, the fears, the concerns, the wants. And Lord, we pray that you would just take all of those things and let us find our peace in you. So we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. And we ask your blessings on this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's look at Luke chapter 2 just make a couple comments from this and then we'll move on. So Luke writes in verse 1, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabitants of the earth. And this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Just give us a little geographic understanding there. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he 
lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondered them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as they had been told to them. What a beautiful story. Again, the sad reality is there are people who think that's just a story. But I just can't help. Every time I think of Christ, and especially this time of year, the amazing purpose of God to send his son to give his life for us, to rescue us. Isn't it amazing how the world just so wants to beat the Lord down, push him out, get rid of him, thinking of him as being some God that's a big ogre with a stick in heaven that just wants to beat you on the head. But everything we read in this text of scripture is about God's love and his grace and his willingness to give himself in our place. Doesn't it just kind of fascinate you that we get lost in the other things of life? Doesn't it just kind of refocus you every time you focus or hear the scripture or hear something about God that if you have heard the truth before, you know that the Lord has come in days gone past to do one thing, which was to rescue the hearts and souls of those people that would see their sin and their desperate situation before him. It's caused me to often think of the phrase, how could we not just think of Jesus as enough? Beautiful tribute this morning. What a, what a message in the song. If all of these things didn't occur on Christmas morning, would our hearts still be filled with the beauty of Christ? I mean, that was Dr. Seuss's message with the Grinch, right? I mean, I love that story. Turn on the TV the other week, I guess it was, and there's that little green man running around. I thought, i got to watch this. Not because it just reminds me of my childhood, because that was what we looked forward to. You remember that? It was Rudolph and uh, the Grinch and Frosty the Snowman. Those were the big three. And then they started adding some others. Uh, But it was because of those things that we began to hear from people who were believers trying to reach into the world without using the text of the Bible uh, what Christ really was and what Christmas is really all about. So again, as we are pondering and we're preparing our heart, even hearts for even uh, Christmas Eve, I pray that your focus will continually throughout the year be not so much on what this world is all about and what you hope to accomplish and what you hope are going to hope is going to happen, but that you're satisfied with the fact that if nothing ever goes right again on this side of heaven, you have a Savior who loves you. You have a God who loves you who sacrificed greatly for us. That's enough to live for, isn't it? Good things to be reminded of. I pray as a church that when we're just going through our motions day after day and week after week, that we won't let that truth escape us, whether we're adding to the property. (coughs) Excuse me. And by the way, if you haven't seen the nursery floor up there, you should take a look at it. New carpeting this week. Looks great. Somebody came through and stole all of our carpeting that was up in the hallway. I think it was Pastor Hamp. Could have been the Grinch, I'm not sure. But that's going to be replaced uh, with some new stuff. And I just pray that as a people we'll never get lost in the things of this world, but that we'll keep our focus on Jesus. And remember, that's what we're here for, because that's what he came for, is to rescue us. Amen? All right. Well, you may wonder, how in the world does any of that 
all fit into where Jesus is in his sermon. So I'm going to ask you now to turn to our series here because I think it does fit extremely well or Matthew wouldn't have given us what he gave us. So turn to Matthew chapter 5 and I want to focus our attention on the next beatitude that Jesus gives on the mountain there as he's sharing the truth with people. So in Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 8 with me if you will. I've titled this, Happy are the Holy. Happy are the Holy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There is a fundamental question that's being asked by the multitude that's at Jesus' feet right now. And it's the same question that most people have been asking throughout history. And that question is, how do I get to heaven? How do I get into God's kingdom? What is the answer? What is the requirement? That's the question. And Jesus is going to answer that. Now let's go back in our memories here for just a minute to Israel because they set the context. The context is critical for us to understand the text of Scripture. And just as a way of review, remember Israel was a mess. Israel was God's chosen people. Now think about that. The God of creation chose for himself a people group to be his witnesses for the rest of the world. That's why you and I have the message of the gospel, because his people group failed in their mission as a whole, as a nation. Not individually, but as a whole, as a nation, they failed in their mission. And this is part of when, uh, what was happening when Jesus came. In fact, this was so perfectly timed by the Lord because of the situation that was going on with his people. The Pharisees, you remember, were that part of the religious group. They were the leaders spiritually. And think about how the enemy works. And by the way, we do have an enemy, Satan himself. He had so infiltrated the religious movement, God's people, the Pharisees, the leaders. And if you want to take down a group, you go to the leadership, right? He had so infiltrated the Pharisees that he had squeezed into them this legalistic system of how to live life. And, you know, legalism is that thing that tells us, do this, don't do that. And it's very easy to live that way. You know, some who are rule followers will say, just give me the rules and I'll live inside that. But don't make it all over the place because I don't know how to live in that. Well, God understands that. All of us fit better in a box. We just do better in a box. And so God, being holy and righteous, gives laws. He gives regulations to show himself as holy. And so the Pharisees, knowing that it was so difficult to keep this, began to develop their own system of keeping the laws. There were too many. There was just no way they could do it. In fact, they became known as the tradition of the elders, where they would say that, you know, kind of in a side kind of comment, they would say it's just too hard to try to keep all of these requirements that the law of Moses is requiring of us, which, by the way, is what Moses got from God in the wilderness years before, that they couldn't do it. And so they said, let's create some traditions that we can keep, that everybody will be able to remember. And we understand what traditions are. It's what we're doing here now. We put a tree in our house, right? Some of us do. We give packages to each other because it's tradition. And we look forward to that tradition every year. It becomes easier to remember things. And so the Jews began to develop their own traditions. And when that didn't work, because the traditions became confusing to some, 
they determine that, hey, you know what, maybe what we'll do is we'll just focus on at least one thing that we can keep and keep well. And surely, if we keep that one thing well, whatever it might be that works for us, according to the law, God will be pleased with us. You see how it's kind of that, I'll figure this out, and surely God will be okay with that. I have to believe that when Jesus later, will see this, is talking to a young man, that this is the concept that's in the idea of the young man. The idea. So look with me at Matthew chapter 19. And if you can't get there quickly enough, just write down the verses and, uh, and put them in your notes there and come back to them later. This is Matthew chapter 19 beginning in verse 16. All we're told here is that this uh, young man comes to him and he refers to him in verse 16 as a teacher, which Jesus certainly was. People were recognizing his ability. And notice the question that he asked. What good thing, you hear the singular? What good thing shall I do that I may what? Have eternal life. You hear the question? It's like, it's back to what I was saying a second ago. The, the Jewish people were so overwhelmed with what was required in the law that they said, okay, let's whittle this down and let's create something that we can do. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, what one thing can I do to have what? Eternal life. And he said to him, Jesus said, well, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Here you go. And then the young guy says to him, well, which ones? And Jesus said, well, he gives him the big ten. You shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And notice the response of the young man. I did, I've done all of that. I have kept those commandments. So at least the young man was able to take the 600 and some laws that had developed over time, and that's reality, and whittled them down to if I could just keep the ten. Now again, the ten were a summary of the laws. And so he felt really good about himself. And he says in verse 20, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Now that's an interesting statement, isn't it? In this young man's heart was this awareness that something was wrong. Now can I say to each of us this morning, there comes a time in all of our lives where we understand spiritually there's something wrong, right? If we're honest, we'll say there's something wrong with my ability to make God happy by myself. And I think this young man felt that. I think out of all of his efforts, he understood there was something that was not right between God and himself. He wasn't confirmed. He wasn't confirmed in the answer to the question, what do I need to do to make sure I enter into heaven one day? And so Jesus said, well, listen, if you wish to be complete, then go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. It's too much. Too much. But keeping just one law violated the holiness of God. That's the next step. So the problem was, 
Even just to keep one law means that you violated everything else. And that's what the scripture tells us in James chapter 2. For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point, what? Is guilty of it all. It's guilty of it all. So you see, the Jews were in a real fix. I mean, which way do we go here? We've got all these laws. We, if we keep them, which is impossible... It's literally impossible. If I keep just one, then I've still, I'm still guilty because I've violated the whole thing if I violate just one. And so they were in a real pickle. And that caused them to be so frustrated. Imagine now, if you're a Hebrew, day after day after day after day, living with the question in your mind, what do I need to do? How am I going to make this right? Am I righteous enough? Am I good enough? Will God accept me? You know, that's the Muslim world today. You realize in the Muslim world that they can live a life of righteousness, at least according to man's appearance. We'll talk about that in just a second. And still they're left with the question in their mind or the knowledge that it could be that Allah will say, uh, I'm still not going to take you. What a tragedy. What kind of life is that? Well, thankfully, beloved, God has not left us that way. But he is defining for us something very clear here, and that's what Jesus is doing in this sermon. He's helping the people to realize that your attempts to be righteous are not going to happen. It's not going to work. But he's building his case, and I hope you see that if you've been with us for the last weeks, of what he's doing here. It's a progression of helping the people to understand where their heart is and what must happen. And now he's really honing this down to get them rid of their legalism, to get rid of their questioning of what they can do to be personally righteous. And so Israel was in a mess. They were in a mess not only politically because they were under the tutelage of Rome. Uh, Rome had basically held their thumb over uh, Israel for years now which caused them to be economically a mess because they were under the weight of heavy, 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 really criminal taxation, which caused them to be really frustrated spiritually also. So they had these three things going on that they were dealing with. And the Pharisees, Jesus had said, became full of dead men's bones. Your religious leaders are people who can't tell which way they're going themselves. They're basically walking you off of a cliff. What a terrible society. I mean, when those things begin to disappear out of your life, the answer to the questions of how I can be made righteous, then there's the constant feeling of worry. Because now listen, these are not people who've never heard the truth about heaven and hell. These are people who are questioning, how do I get there? Because they understood the alternative, which was if I can't get there, then I've only gonna, I'm only have one other place to go. And so imagine you talk about anxiety, you talk about the need for counselors. I mean, they would be searching out everybody that they could find. Help me here because I've got this ulcer that's building because I don't want to go to hell. They understood the reality of all of that and were so overwhelmed by everything that was going on. When in reality, they should have been the humblest of people because God had chosen them. God had made very clear to them that they were his people. They should have been the happiest people on the earth. They should have been the most contented 
people on the earth, not because they were in a perfect environment, a perfect situation, but because of what God had said to them and how God had made them his people, because God loved them, because God loved them. Listen, when God loves us, beloved, there's nothing else we need. Do you hear that? And I'm not talking about we don't need food and water and sleep and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about in the inner man. When we know with assurance that God of the gods, the creator of all creation, the one who sustains everything in this life, loves us, when we have that securely in our hearts, we should be the happiest people that there are, the most contented, right? I mean, again, didn't, it's sad to say, but it's wonderful at the same time, Charles Schultz kind of nailed that. When the Grinch gets up on top of the mountain and he's listening to hear for the cries of the Who's down in Whoville because Christmas is gone and they come out and they join hands and they're singing that Fahurahu, whatever that is. <laughs> we won't get theology from the Who's, right? But they understood that it wasn't in the packages. It wasn't in the presents. The Bamboombas and whatever those things were. They understood. Suffice it to say, what Jesus, I believe, was saying to his people is, look, you guys should get it. You're the ones who should understand. I chose you. You're my people. You know the truth. But they had so missed it because they'd become blind to what the reality was and they'd started buying into too many other things. And we should say hello to each other at that point. Hello? Right? We, the church, often buy into too many of the wrong things. And it's just reality. We're weak and we're frail. And this is what Jesus is saying. Listen, you must become this way through the sermon. That's what he's saying. You must understand these things. This is what my people are like. This is who my people are. This is what my kingdom is made up of. And he's, again, dismantling, disassembling the entire structure of what the, the Pharisees had built in their humanistic attempt to be righteous. And Jesus just comes and piece by piece begins to tear it to the ground. And they couldn't stand it because their flesh had gotten so involved they wanted the praise and glory for themselves, which is, by the way, how the enemy works. Jesus proving his love and his concern for Israel. Listen to the heart of our Lord. Later, as he rides into Jerusalem, he says this in Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets... That's how bad Israel had gotten. The very people that God had sent to his own people, out of his own people, to share the truth, they killed them. Talking about irony. And the stones which, excuse me, the prophets and the stones, those who were sent to her, how often, listen to his heart, I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are unwilling. God's saying, I was willing. I wanted to bring you into my loving fold, my loving kindness, but you, you Israel, were unwilling. You didn't want me. Listen, you drive up 29 and you see a lack of evidence of Christ is not because of God. It's because the people don't want God, right? It's been the same way for centuries, so it's nothing new. And praise the Lord, not all the 
people in Israel were like the Pharisees. There were certainly some who believed and wondered. They heard. They listened. In fact, there was one main Pharisee that we're told about. His name was Nicodemus, who knew the prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah, who foretold the coming of the Christ. And so we have this story of Nicodemus as he learns of Jesus, comes to him by night. Now we're told that Nicodemus was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, basically. Paul said that of himself. But Nicodemus was a man who was the leader among, or a leader, if not the leader at the time, among the religious leaders in Israel. And he was asking the same question. How do we do this? How do we make this happen? How do I make sure that I'm in the kingdom of heaven? Let's look at it in John chapter 3 just for a second. We're told by John, John chapter 3. Again, I'm going to scoot on for time's sake. Just write down the reference or just listen carefully. There was a man of the Pharisees. See, there's the understanding of who he was, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, don't skip past that too soon. I don't have time to go into all of that, but just understand this man was uh, uppity-up, okay? He was on the top of the food chain when it came to leadership in the Jews. He came to Jesus by night, again, probably because he was intimidated by his buddies. And he asked him, Rabbi, or says to him, Rabbi, that's just a word for teacher, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. We know that you've come from God. So he, by night, is being straight up with Jesus and saying, look, everybody else may be skirting the issue here, but we all know you've come from God. And here's how we know, because nobody can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. In other words, in Nicodemus' heart, God had begun to penetrate him. The Spirit had begun to penetrate him to the point where he was really needing to know what this is all about, who Jesus really is. And he's asking the same question, I think, without even knowing it. He's really asking Jesus because Jesus answers the question without the question even being asked. He's saying, how do I get into heaven? How, as a leader of the Jews, do I make sure that I am going to spend eternity with God? How do I do that? And Jesus responds to him in his own way, again, answering the question Nicodemus is not even asking yet, at least in the text, but because Jesus knows the minds and the hearts of all people. Notice what he says in verse 3. Truly, truly, and that's a... uh, Hebrewism, if you will, it's a Greek way of saying, whether whatever language you're looking at of the two, is to say, you better mark this down, don't forget this, put it in your note app, right? Put it somewhere in your phone so that you don't forget this, Nicodemus. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's your answer, Nicodemus. That's the answer that every Hebrew has been asking as we're talking about up to this point. How do I get into the kingdom? Jesus answers the question. You have to be born again. You must be born again. And there were many others asking that question. In fact, I believe that the multitudes sitting on the hillside at Jesus' feet were asking the same question. If you again put yourself in their context, you understand under the pressure that they had been facing, not only from the Romans, but from their own people, their religious leaders and their economic situation, they knew of the coming 
of the Messiah prophetically. And they looked around them and they said, this is a mess. How are we going to get out of this? What do we have to do? And I think they were asking the same question. And Jesus answers in this beatitude, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart. Listen, for they shall what? They shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. Who? The pure in heart. They are the ones who shall, shall, shall see God. Now listen, let's back up just a little bit. Every living soul knows that God exists. Now you may be sitting here this morning and you're hearing all of this, maybe for the first time, maybe you're hearing pieces that you've heard before, maybe you've struggled with the whole concept of being born again, maybe you're struggling with who God is, you're struggling with, is he really everything this preacher's saying he is? Well, let me just give you some evidence that will help confirm this in your own heart, is that every living soul knows that God exists. Now, don't get lost in my statement because you may not know who the God is, but every living soul knows that he exists. And you say, how do I know that? Well, according to Romans 1, the Apostle Paul wrote this, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that which is known about God is evident. Where? Within them. For God made it evident to them. Now, in context, Paul is talking about the human race. He's talking about the human race. Specifically, he's talking about the Jews, but he's also including the entire human race. Every living soul knows that God exists because God made himself evident to every living soul. When did he do that? Look at verse 24. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been seen. His eternal power and his divine nature have been seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Listen, every living soul looks into the world and says, this is way too big for any person to have created. And so because of that knowledge, They'll say, well, here's how I got here. It just evolved. It just blew up, and this is what happened. And millions and billions in, of money and time has been spent in proving and disproving concepts. The reality is God of the creation of the universe, of the soul of man, has said, you know me because I made myself evident in your heart. Now, you may not know me personally, but you know I exist. And that's what God, that's what every person wrestles with. Every single soul, beloved, is out here in our world looking for the answer to the question, who is God and how do I get to be with him? Now, some have tried to deny that, which kind of blows my mind because they'll say there is no God and they'll fight everybody who wants to talk about a God. And my opinion is, why are you fighting against something that you don't say, ex that you say doesn't exist? That doesn't make sense. If he doesn't exist, what do you care? The problem is, every soul is estranged from God. And that's because of sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every soul has fallen short of God's glory. It's because of sin. Romans 6.23, and there's a payment for that sin. It's death. The wages of sin is death. But the beauty of God's gift to us is that his gift is eternal life 
through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came. The whole purpose of Christmas is to give us Christ, the debt payer of our sin. Now, the people on the mountain didn't understand that point yet, but Jesus was building to that point, and he would build to that point continually through the sermon that will continue on for several chapters, but also through the existence of his life here on earth when he was here for three years. That's what he was proving to them. I am God who has come in the flesh. I took on flesh to be the debt payer for all souls, for every soul. And there are some who understand that. Most do not, and so they rebel against him. Because our flesh is the enemy of God. It was in rebellion to God, and all of that was passed on to each living soul. And so every person in rebellion against him who wants to rebel against God seeks their own way to be righteous and will say, I don't need that God. I can do it on my own. I can make my own way. I don't need any help. That stuff is just for weak people. And they go on living their lives, and unless they repent, they're going to find that their sin will bring them retribution eventually. If you go on in Romans chapter 1, this is what God says about that. If a person wants to continue on in their sin, he says, okay, verse 28, as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. In other words, God is saying, you know who I am. You know that I exist. You may not know me personally, but you know I exist. If you're going to continually deny me, then here's what I'm going to have to do because of who I am. I'm going to give you over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. In other words, there's a judgment. Not only will you pay for your rebellion through your life, but I will in this life give you a mind that is no longer functioning as a mind. And you'll do some wicked things. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, hear that again, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, I don't have time to go through all of that, but if you want to hear more about that, go back to our Roman study we did some years ago, and you can listen to all those messages again. Basically, Jesus is saying this, or the Apostle Paul, through the power of the Spirit, is saying, and you go into chapter 2, he says, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. He will judge the secrets of men of men through Christ Jesus. What are secrets? What's he talking about here? Well, it's very simple. He's talking about the motives of mankind. The motive of man's heart, God will judge. He will give judgment to man's actions. And it's so imperative, beloved, that we see our hearts. This is the point where the magnifying glass, the microscope, whatever you want to call it, comes out and examines the depths of our hearts and we begin to see the need to make changes way before it's too late. We must make the changes before it's too late. And don't think for a second that we can hide ourselves from the inner hide our inner selves from God. You know, we have this tendency to think that if I just keep my life in the shadows a little bit, that maybe this God that I feel and kind of sense in my heart won't know. 
I mean, after all, if the people around me don't know, then surely this God won't know because I'm not quite sure he exists anyway. But yet, I'm even bringing those thoughts up because I know that he does exist. Because scripture says that he placed himself in my heart as knowledge. 1 Chronicles 28.9 says, For the Lord searches all hearts, and listen to this, understands every intent of the thoughts. Talking about your uh, iPhone or computer camera being on. Your smart TV watching you in your living room or your little Nest thing watching you in your room. That doesn't compare anything to what God knows. Listen to another. The psalmist would write in Psalm 139, Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Did you know that this morning? You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. How about this one? Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to hide? You see, that's the point. We don't need to hide. We can't hide. What God is after is for us to recognize that we're lost and come to him, the only one who can help us, the only one who wants to help us truly. Satan wants to destroy us. God wants to help us. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Why? Because our deeds express our hearts. What happens in our hearts will be expressed in what we do. Luke writes in chapter 8, For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. How about that? There is nowhere we can hide. There's nowhere we can hide. And so the question then is again, how does a man become right with God? If God knows the inner thoughts that I have, if he knows where I am, if he knows my going down and my rising up, where do I find righteousness? How do I become right with him? Because I can tell you, beloved, if you're like me at all and you are honest with yourself and you look into the depths of your own heart, you realize you don't hold a candle, right, to what you should be and what you want to be. Let's define some of the things that Jesus is talking about here when he says the pure in heart. He really is just saying it all starts with accepting the fact that God is holy. That's what he's talking about. That's why I titled it this way, Happy Are the Holy. We have to accept the fact that God is holy, and anybody who comes into his kingdom must be holy. That's what Jesus is saying. Very simple line. I'm elaborate. I'm giving the commentary on Jesus' sermon that he didn't give. But Jesus, in effect, was sitting on the mountain and he's saying, listen, here's the answer to the question. Isn't it awesome that God is not somehow hanging the answer to the question out on a carrot, like a carrot on a stick in front of a horse and saying, okay, jump, jump. And sometimes I think we think that. It's like, oh, woo-hoo, that was a good try. But you still didn't get it. Nah, 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 nah. God is not that way. God is saying, look, here's the answer. It's right here. 
You don't have to look everywhere. You don't have to figure out how you're going to be righteous. You don't have to do a bunch of stuff. It's right here. What's he saying? What is right here? Number one, you've got to realize God is holy. He's holy. It has to start there. What does that mean? To define holy just simply means other or separate. Meaning, if you put it in a sentence, it would be, he is other than we are. He is separate from us. He is different from us. And doesn't that kind of excite you a little bit, that God is not the same as we are? I don't want a God that's the same as I am. I mess up too much. I don't want a God that goes, oh, crud. Blew that. Oh, well. Let's just keep going. That's not God. And so we got to come to the place that we say, God, you are holy. You're separate from me. You're distinct. You're unique from me. You're other than me. Jesus said, blessed, happy, contented. The person who has the right relationship is happy, is contented. That's what we want, right? We're looking for Christmas morning presents because we want to be happy. We kind of hit the doldrums when January and February come because it's boring, it's cold, it's dark, it's wet, and that's who wants that, right? We're people who want happiness. Jesus says, okay, you want happiness? Here's the answer. The heart represents the inner person. It's the emotions. It's that place where we live inside of ourselves, where we feel and we think. It's the control center. When the scriptures talk about the heart, that's what the Lord's talking about. Happy are those whose heart is changed. How? In our thinking, in our willpower, right? In our emotions, which all tie together. God wants an inner change. Jesus is sitting on the mountain. He's saying, look, folks, here's the answer. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the people who are separate, who are other, who are distinct. Why? Because they understand that they have to have God's righteousness. And that comes from a change in the heart. There has to be a change in the heart. Jesus will later say in Matthew 15, out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and theft and false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. And you see how the religions of the world say, just do, 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 and you'll be righteous? And God says, baloney! That has nothing to do with it. What I'm after is your heart. Is your heart changed? James says in 4.8, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify what? Your hearts. Purify your hearts, that inner place, that core of yourself. The point is, if we want to enter the kingdom of God, the heart has to be pure. It has to be holy. It has to be distinct. To be pure means to remove of contamination, right? You like your clothes to be purely clean. You like your food to be clean. That's just another way of saying pure. The big thing today is we don't want antibiotics. We don't want drugs put into our foods. We want organic. We want real life stuff, right? That's We're looking for purity. 
I believe that our millennials today are looking for purity. They've seen so much dysfunction in the church of God that they're looking for reality. Why? Because the Spirit has placed within their hearts a knowledge of God that they may not even know exists, but they're looking for reality. That's what Jesus is saying here. Listen, blessed are the pure, those who have single-minded devotion. Single-minded devotion, undivided, unmixed. That's my people. Often, and this is a praise to the Lord, we look at examples like King David, who was a man after God's own heart, but he failed a lot. He was pretty miserable in his failures, but he had a single-minded devotion to the Lord. We fail a lot. We realize we're not righteous. We can't do it on our own, and we see our failures. But the point is is that if we have a single-minded devotion to the Lord, that's what God is looking for. He's not looking for perfection. That's coming later through Christ. Psalm 57, 7, My heart is steadfast, David said. My heart is steadfast. Twice he says it. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Listen, this was a guy who committed adultery, who had a man murdered, who lived a life of deception at one point, but yet his heart was still singularly focused on God. And so take courage, beloved, by that, that even though we fail a lot, and some people have failed as we examine ourselves among each other, which is typically what we do, right? We look at our neighbor and we'll say, whew, sure I'm glad I didn't go through all that. And we'll grade ourselves based on the other person. And typically, here's how grading goes. We find the worst person in the crowd. And we measure ourselves against them. Right? I mean, I do this all the time. When I'm at the gym, I look at people that are worse than I am and I go work out with them. Makes me feel a whole lot better. And I stay away from those big, strong, hulking guys and ladies. I'm like, no, they make me feel terrible because I can't keep up with them. That's our human nature, right? We want to be with people that make us feel better about ourselves. That's how we grade ourselves. But what we really need to be doing is grading ourselves against the holiness of God. He's the measuring stick. Paul saw this in his own life in chapter 7 of Romans. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. Could we all just agree with that this morning? Now listen, that's step number one. You've got to be able to say, I know that nothing good dwells in me. Now, I'm not talking about talents, the ability to play the piano or draw or drive or whatever. We're talking about the inner soul of the person. Paul says that, in my flesh. I mean, the willing's there, but the doing is, is just not there. The good I want to do, I don't do, the pra- I, but I practice the very evil that I don't want. You hear the conflict in him? But if I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do, I, and I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And so I find this principle that evil is present in me and the one who wants to do good. So he's got this crazy conflict going on. My want to is there. Man, I want to. I want to. I want to live righteously. That's what Nicodemus was saying. That's what the, the young man was saying to Jesus. I want to live righteously, but I can't do it. Every time I start out well, I turn around and I mess up here, and it's all just, I never get there. How do I get into heaven? How do I get there? Purity of heart is not sincerity. 
Let's just be clear about that. There are a lot of sincere people. A lot of sincere people. I was picking on the Muslims a minute ago. We could in, in, include any group. Our neighbors across the street, we could, whomever, we could say there are lots of sincere people that would go through great lengths to prove their desire for righteousness, to be right with God. There's stories of people who have drugged themselves across broken glass and crawled through fire, literally, because they really believe they're trying so hard to be found righteous somehow. There are lots of sincere people. There are sincere people who maybe never want to talk about God, but will sincerely live a life of goodness in the presence of other people. But that's not the same as the purity the Lord's talking about here. He's talking about purity of soul. Purity of soul. Some people did amazing things. I mean, they were the people in Jesus' day who healed people from demons, healed various things in their life. And Jesus said, listen, I never knew you. Let me talk about the word know for a minute, K-N-O-W. When Jesus says, I never knew you, it's the word that means knowledge. It's an intimate setting. It's It's the same thing that God spoke of with Adam and Eve when Adam knew his wife Eve. There was a, an intimacy there that only they knew. And when Jesus is saying, listen, all of you who have made these attempts to be righteous out there, I never knew you. I never had an intimate relationship with you. That's what he's saying. It's not about checking the block. It's not about just coming up with the right answer. It's about knowing me internally from your heart. And it's got to start with understanding that you're not perfect. I'm the only one that's perfect. I am the Holy One. You know, there, this time of year, there are many people that are very benevolent. I noticed that again yesterday. If you watched, you know, there are lots of people who care nothing about God and they hear the story of somebody and it's hurting and they think it's Christmas and so they'll give. And some people will give large sums of money. They'll give large amounts of gifts to people because they're very benevolent in their hearts. And I don't want to take that away from people. That's a very kind thing because it makes them feel better. You know, really, that's why people do what they do because they really want things to be right. Again, the problem is they're judging by their own standards. And we can't do that if we're going to enter into, the, into heaven. So we ask the question, how in the world then do we accomplish this? Well, we have to live according to the standard. That's Jesus. That's God. Jesus is on the mountain and he's saying, I am the standard. God is the standard. The Father in heaven is the standard. He is the one that you have to please. In other words, everyone who is going to enter into the kingdom of God must be pure, must be holy as he is holy. And that's what we're told in Scripture. Psalm 24, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's who can get there. And you're saying, great. I still can't do it. And we're all going, right. We can't do it. But that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. I mean, again, it's, this is why I could say it's so beautiful to have the children portray this this morning because it's such a simple message. It's such a simple message, but we make it so hard. 
God is saying, look, you've got to see that you're broken and you're messed up, that I am holy. You cannot be righteous enough to enter into my kingdom, but I'm going to demand that you become righteous. Well, how am I going to do that? God says, I'm going to do it for you. That's how. I'm going to do it for you. Like, what? Nobody does that. I mean, there are nice people in the world, but nobody does that. Right? But God says, I will, because I love you. I will. Jesus is saying, listen, you've got to know that you're not holy. I am. God is. You've got to see that you're not anything but impure. And now let's back up just a few verses, just quickly. He says, you've got to come as a beggar, right? And when you see yourself in the corner because you have no righteousness of your own, you mourn over that. You're so sorrowful over that. And you reach out your hand as a beggar and you, in meekness, realize that there's nothing that you have to offer God, but you see that it's all through Him. It's all through His kindness. And so you hunger and you thirst for His righteousness to cover you, to be what you need for Him to be. You just can't get away from that hunger. It's a starving, thirsting that's unquenchable. And we receive His forgiveness. And when we feel the forgiveness of Christ who pays the debt of our sin, we in turn go out and become merciful because our God is merciful and he's shown us great mercy. Paul would say this in Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished or poured out on us. You see, beloved, listen, the picture is just, I can just see Jesus standing on the mountain just going like this. If you just let me, I'll pour out my love on you. I'll pour out. The writer of the Old Testament says, he'll open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing. That's what Jesus is saying. Listen, world, I'm not coming to give you a bunch of hoopla and go do this and go do that. I'm simply saying to you, you must understand that I am holy, you're not. And if you want to enter into my kingdom, you must understand that I am the one who gives you the ticket to get there. That's it. you got to come my way. How do I come? you got to come as a beggar. you got to come mourning over your sin. you got to come hungering and thirsting for righteousness because that's what begins to happen, right? Those of us who have seen our sin, we begin to realize we have no righteousness of our own. And so we turn to God and he gives us this hungering for more righteousness. And we realize it's all him. And so in our humility, we just say, thank you, Lord. You receive the glory. You take the praise. You get all the joy. And in turns, he gives us back to us. Now, there's a lot more that I could cover here and I won't take the time to do that. There's some theological things that would help us with purity. But we don't need to cover all that right now. We need to understand the point. You say, what do I do about this every day? Let's just end practically here. Trust the Lord for his power and his guidance. If he's the one that did it, if he's the one that paid the debt, he can sustain us, right? Some people will say, okay, Jesus did this, and I'm going to go out, and I'm going to do all this stuff to make sure he stays happy with me. He doesn't take it away from me. No, he doesn't take anything away from us. He will judge us. 
when we follow our flesh. He'll come back and he'll correct us because he loves us. He wants us to continue to be righteous. So we trust him and his power. We live by faith. That's hard. But we say, okay, Lord, I don't understand everything that's going on in my life today, but I trust you. I believe you. I know you love me. I know you have a plan for my life. And all this is in Scripture. We don't have time to cover. So I'm going to follow you. I'm going to accept you for what you've done. And here's where we really fall short. Number three is we need to stay in his word. Stay in his word. Listen, the greatest, the greatest, 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 and I'll say it again, the greatest attack against God's people from Satan is to deny them the word of God. That's his attack. If he can convince you and me to leave the word of God out of our lives, he's got us where he wants us. That's what he wants. And think with me, we fall victim to that, don't we? Every time we get the sense that we should pick up the Bible and read it, we have the enemy whispering in our ear, you don't need that. You've heard that story before. Especially when it comes to the holidays, if you've been in Christ for a long time, you get to the place where you're hearing about the birth of Christ, you're like, man, I've heard that before. I could recite that to my, from my memory. I know this all the way from the bottom to the top. And Satan says, yeah, that's good. Because if you start thinking that, then you're going to forget some things because you're not perfect. And I'm going to begin to lure you little by little away from what God really wants you to know. When the person who is trusting God says every moment of their day, Lord, I just can't believe that you would love me enough to save me in the midst of my wicked condition. I can't believe it. I I just can't believe it. The person who truly understands what Christ has done never gets over it. They just don't ever get over it. I mean, they just don't need any other fanfare other than Jesus himself. That's it. That's all they need. Their sole focus is on Christ. The closest that I can get to this emotion that I'm talking about, and you've heard this before, and I'm not just saying this because Nathan's here and Anna's here, but they're the subject of this story, was when Debbie and I were young in our marriage, and again, forgive me if you heard this, but I just want you have to hear the the emotion of this from me because it's the only way I know how to express it to you, the truth of what I believe Jesus is teaching us here. We were on the beach at Virginia Beach. Debbie had taken some stuff out to the beach. I was back at the car. Nathan was with me. He went out there to the beach. I came back because I forget lots of things. Debbie comes back. She says, where's Nathan? I said, I thought he was with you. And understand the beach was overrun with people. Go back out on the beach. He's not there. And and I I don't know how to put it into words, but I was thinking about this this week. The sheer terror that hit my heart. The fear that overwhelmed me. And I'm not blowing smoke at you. I'm just telling you the truth of what I was experiencing. Where is he? Hundreds of people on the beach. And finally, after going to the lifeguard and, and, and just, it, it was one of those panic situations of, I don't even know where to turn right this second. And this was happening in nanoseconds. You know how fast your brain works? And finally, one guy 
kind of lifts up off of his beach towel. He says, you looking for a little boy? I said, yes. And he says, I think I saw him walking that way. And so took off that way and almost down to the next lifeguard chair. You know how far apart they are if you've been to the beach. There's this little guy kicking the sand along, chasing the little seagulls. Well, here's, here's what I want to express to you. My heart instantly went from terror to, thank you, Lord. Thank you. And the tears began to come down my face. And I don't know if he he probably didn't remember this. But I just asked him, what are you doing? (laughs) He says, I'm I'm just chasing that little bird. Again, I'm I'm struggling with my words to find what the point is. I think the point is, beloved, that God wants us to so realize our helplessness. Now listen, he wants us to so realize our helplessness in making ourselves righteous that when his righteousness appears to us, we are just blown away by the goodness of God. And for me, that scenario is what it took. Now, we had to go through it again with Anna. That was a different location. But <laughs> but here's the interesting part. When we, when I, let's be clear about that, lost Anna, okay, it was the same fear, though. And so what I once felt, now watch this, this is interesting. What I felt at one point in my life with our son, I had forgotten somewhat over time. But I quickly remembered it as soon as we lost Anna. Now it was all my fault because I wasn't doing my job. But God reminded me of the joy of what he had done in that first scenario when we found her. So here's what I'm saying. You may have experienced the joy of the Lord at one point in your life, and you know what I'm talking about. It wasn't just a, oh, man, that was pretty cool. It's a, I can't breathe and I'm so joyful because of what I've seen and experienced in my own heart. And kind of gone along your merry way and forgotten that and gotten wrapped up in life. And then God is reminding you again, hey, listen, forget what I did for you. You are so unrighteous. You're so ugly. You're so impure. You so violate my holiness. But I love you so much. I imputed is the theological word. I gave to you. I placed upon you my righteousness. And because I gave to you my righteousness, you are now set free in the eyes of the Father. Because the debt is paid. I paid it, Jesus. I paid it. When Jesus is sitting on the mountain, he is saying to the people, listen, you must be born again. You must be pure in your heart. I can't do that, God. That's exactly right. You can't. That's why I've come. That's why I came. Now listen, talk about a Christmas gift. I mean, good grief. Unwrap that puppy. Not puppy, but... (laughs) You understand? (laughs) My gosh. Sometimes I wonder why I do this. I I hope you understand the point. Listen, please don't let Satan deceive you to the point where you think you're okay 
Don't do that. But listen to the words of the Lord. Listen to the goodness of the Lord. He really does love you. He loves me. John 3.16, right? For God so what? Love the world. He loves you and he loves me. And he came to pay our debt. Could we not just this Christmas at least worship the Lord just because of what he's done for us, because of who he is, and not get lost? Jesus says, listen, here's the answer to the question. You want to come to my kingdom? You must be pure in heart. Notice what he says. What do he say at the end? Those people will what? They'll see God. They'll see God. That's the crescendo. The crescendo as it's building is those are the people who will see God. Now what he's going to do next, he's going to get into some practical things. Because once a person understands their heart and the need for Christ and they see Christ and they embrace Christ, then it's going to be acted out. And that's where he's going next. Listen, that's a beautiful Christmas story, isn't it? What an awesome Christmas story. We didn't have to jump so much into the other part of the manger. But Jesus really, in, in a way, says... Here was my birth. I came without real big fanfare except to a select few. But boy, I'm going to live in front of you Christmas every day. Christ Mass, right? All right. Well, let's pray together. Father, we're reminded of the truths of your love for us. So we thank you and we praise you. Lord, may the truth of what we've talked about and heard from you this morning never leave our minds. Lord, for those of us who know you, we pray that you would keep us focused on you throughout the moments of our day. And Lord, for anyone that may be here today that is wrestling with anything that we've said this morning, the one thing that they must leave here with, I pray, Father, is the knowledge that you know them. They may not know you, but you know them. You know every thought. You know every action. They're going down. They're rising up, as we heard earlier. And so I pray for the soul that is just right there, that you would help them to reach out to you a beggar's hand. Lord, help them to deny themselves their pride and stop looking at everything else to find some peace and find some meaning and joy but let them just completely turn to you and we know according to your word you will give them a contentedness that they've never never experienced before and they will have the assurance that they will live with you in your kingdom forever so thank you Lord and do your work we pray now in Jesus name amen all right would everyone stand please
Father, may you reach into every corner of the world and rescue those souls that so desperately need rescuing. Thank you, Father, for being with us this morning. We pray that you would be honored in our Christmas Eve service and in our lives as we go from this place. And that when we meet again, we will know that we have been with you throughout the week and we come to celebrate your resurrection. Today, we celebrate your coming. And we are forever and eternally grateful. And we long for your return. But until that time, we pray that you would find us faithful, living lives of righteousness, not because of ourselves, but because of you and what you've done. We thank you and we praise you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas, everyone.